morning, friends. Good to see you this morning. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1. That's the second gospel. And uh, we'll continue our study of Mark that we began last Sunday. So, Tony, I'm just going to disagree with one thing you said, that Luke 15 is hard to understand. Uh, I don't believe it is. I believe it's hard to swallow. Not, not hard to understand. Let's look at our passage today. We'll be looking at uh, back TVs, on, not on guys. Whenever you can get that, that'd be awesome. So let's read our passage. It's uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Mark 14, uh, Mark 1, 14 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their nets Excuse me, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the very word of God, his inerrant and authoritative word. And let's ask for his help as we look into these verses uh, this morning. So we do come, Lord Christ. Uh, we come to you, Father, through Christ. And we do ask that you would illumine our minds and hearts by your good spirit, that he would uh, show us what you have to say, that he would reveal what you are saying through these words of scripture. Strengthen our hearts and minds, especially if we find them hard to swallow. Please strengthen us with your grace to hear and to put this into practice. Christ Jesus, we pray all this in your precious name. Amen. This gentleman in the blue is uh, Frederick the Great, uh, king of a province in Germany known as Prussia at the time. And on occasion, Frederick invited some notable people to his royal table, including his top-ranking generals. Among them was this fellow on horseback here. I know you can't see that very clearly cutting a dashing figure, uh, supposedly this man in action. His name is Hans von Zieten. He declined the invitation to the king's table. His reason was he wanted to participate in the Lord's Supper that day at his church rather than attend dinner with the king. Well, uh, Frederick, as kings often do, held another banquet. This one, von Zieten, was present. And on this occasion, uh, the king and his guest mocked him for his religious principles. And they even went so far as to make light of the Lord's Supper. 
So von Zieten, taking his life in his hands, pushed his chair back and stood to his feet and said in a respectful tone, My Lord, there is a greater king than you, a king to whom I have sworn allegiance even unto death. I am a Christian man, and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored, his character belittled, and his cause subjected to ridicule. With your permission, I shall withdraw. The other generals uh, gulped, held their breath, knowing that this might be the end of von Zieten. To their great surprise and relief, King Frederick grasped his hand of this general who had proven himself in battle, asked for his forgiveness, and asked him to please remain at dinner. He went on to promise von Zieten that he would never again allow such contempt for sacred things at his table. Well, I, th I think most of us would recognize von Zieten's actions as a as a courageous display of loyalty to Christ, even, maybe even heroic, to stand up and, and take your life in your hands to confess Christ in front of those who are openly mocking him. But isn't that what he calls all of us to do? Isn't that something that every follower of Christ is is called to uh, an allegiance that's similar to von Zieten here? And wasn't this the point of our scripture reading today in Luke 14? A, a passage that concludes with the words, So therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does Christ really call us to this level of loyalty? What kind of allegiance does Jesus expect from those who follow him? Has he called us in, in our own way, in our own worlds, to somehow imitate uh, Baron von Zieten? Well, we want to we answer that. What kind of loyalty are we called to? What level of allegiance have we been summoned to? Is it like this? In these first two events of Jesus' public ministry that Mark presents to us, uh, we'll see the answer. Two events from the early days of his ministry will demonstrate the kind of allegiance that he calls us to. Um, the first event that we encounter here in Mark chapter 1 is the proclamation of the king. The proclamation of the king. Jesus arrives in Galilee announcing God's kingdom and calling for a change in loyalty. Actually, there are three changes uh, that are described in this uh, first uh, event. Now, the first is a change in location. Uh, the first part of Jesus' ministry takes uh, place up in the north of Israel in a region called Galilee. Uh, verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came in the, into Galilee. Last Sunday morning, verses 1 through 13, all of that took place out in the wilderness. Uh, the setting of 
those opening verses was, uh, we noted last week, uh, right in the Jordan River Valley, somewhere up in here. Uh, all of the events, John's baptism, Jesus' temptation, um, uh, took place in the wilderness. But in verse 14, the setting of Mark's account shifts to that purple region up to the north, and in particular, takes place uh, near, in and around the Sea of Galilee up there. Um, Mark sees this region uh, as the place of opportunity. Galilee is where Jesus is widely accepted and where he enjoys his greatest popularity. That's not to say everyone accepts him, um, but a great many do. And at the end of this chapter, Mark will report to us and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And then later in chapter 3, this continues. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea. All of this in spite of the fact that Galilee is what you and I would refer to as the backwoods. Or, you know, when I was growing up we would say the boonies. Uh, short for boondocks, whatever boondocks are. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's in the country, so to speak. No offense to those of you from uh, the country. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jerusalem to the south, Mark describes Jerusalem is, uh, let's see, where is Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem's way down here probably below the pulpit edge for some of you to see, right? Kind of level with the top of the Dead Sea. For Mark, Mark describes that as the place of conflict. That's where there is open opposition and Jesus encounters great conflict in that region. It's a, it's a, it's a place of faithlessness and resistance to, to Christ, uh, the anointed king. So to begin with, there's a change in location that we see uh, in this passage. But the second thing we see is that there's also a change of kingdoms. Uh, Jesus, God's anointed king, announces the arrival of God's kingdom. And verse 14 goes on to say, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel or the good news of God. This word proclaiming. It becomes an important word in the New Testament. It describes what a herald does. Uh, a herald who would come into a town and, and would post a public notice and would announce, hear ye, hear ye, or something to that effect. It means that to announce important news, to make a public declaration, to announce in a formal or official capacity uh, this is what John the Baptist was doing up in verse 4. He was Christ's herald. Uh, the herald of the, the anointed king. It says in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Same word is used. And as the New Testament progresses, the word is used eventually to refer to preaching. Writing to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word using this very term that's used here in Mark 1. Or in other words, he says to Timothy, herald the word. Announce the word. 
lift up your voice, publicly declare the truth to the church in Ephesus where Timothy was. And this is what Jesus is doing here in Galilee, announcing, declaring, publishing the good, the good news or the gospel, uh, as it says here. Uh, and this good news is from God. He's the source. He's the origin of the good news. And, and verse 15 goes on to explain what the good news was. It says in verse 15, in saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And you'll see there are two parts to the good news. Uh, the first part being that the time was fulfilled. Uh, the critical moment of history had arrived. This was a new era, a new dawn. Uh, with the arrival of uh, His anointed King, God has intervened in history. And He's intervened to accomplish His eternal purposes. And these purposes would be fulfilled in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, His anointed King. Paul talks about this time, this key moment. And he says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And again, Ephesians 1 makes reference to this key moment, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of of time. So uh, the first part of this good news is, is that moment has come. The critical point in history has arrived. The second part of the good news that he mentions there in verse 15 is that the kingdom of God was at hand, uh, called the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. This is God's rule over people's hearts and lives. His sovereign rule over everyone who has been saved by Christ. Right now, this, this kingdom is invisible. Uh, we can't see it. Uh, its invisible form is, is described as an expanding realm, embracing ever more and more people. A realm into which one may enter and find one's inheritance. A realm where there are both great and small. On the day Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will become visible. Wow! And I cannot wait for the kingdom of God to become visible. Its visible form is called that final state of affairs in which in which God's supreme reign is fully realized over a transformed universe. It's kind of a good theological definition there, a little wordy. Uh, but basically what they're saying is this kingdom is both now and not yet. It's now in, in Christ's rule over people's hearts and lives, but it is also not yet. It will be... Uh, finalized and made visible. Now it's inaugurated right here in this passage. It's begun, but then it will be consummated. It'll be finalized and made visible to all. And Jesus says here that the kingdom is at hand, uh, meaning that it was near, it was close by. 
the, the kingdom of God had come near with the arrival of God's anointed king, who is Jesus. So there's been a change of kingdoms. The, the crucial point of history had come, and God's kingdom, uh, that he rules the hearts and lives of believers, was there in Christ. Um, the era of prophecy had passed. The era of fulfillment had arrived. The kingdom of God had come. So this change of kingdoms brings a third change as well. A change of location. It's moved up to Galilee now. All the action is up there. There's a change of kingdoms. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Thirdly, there's a change of loyalty because of this. A change of loyalty. Christ calls for a change of allegiance. Um, along with this new kingdom comes the opportunity to enter the kingdom. And entrance into the kingdom of God is described throughout the New Testament. Uh, Matthew mentions it in his account. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Luke describes it too, this entrance into the kingdom. Well, here's Mark. First Matthew, Mark. Luke will be the next one, I bet. I made the slides. I should know. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then here's Luke. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And you're probably guessing John is next. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Even Paul uh, mentions this uh, in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The Bible, the New Testament rather, talks about entrance into this kingdom Christ announces. It's entrance into salvation. It's entrance uh, into God's free gift of uh, salvation through Christ. Entrance into the kingdom is entrance into the kingdom of light and deliverance from the kingdom of darkness, Paul mentions here, and, and deliverance from the eternal punishment that awaits those in the darkness. <clears throat> and so I hope the burning question arises in your mind, uh, how do I gain entrance into this kingdom? How do I escape the kingdom of darkness? How do I, uh, what's required to escape darkness and enter the kingdom of light? Well, here in this third uh, part, this new loyalty. Jesus describes what's required for entrance into the kingdom. Uh, he names two requirements, and these are also in verse 15. Look at the verse again with me. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, there it is, the first requirement, and I ran out of room, so excuse me for tucking it way down on the screen, it says repent. Uh, um, the first requirement is to repent. All those who want to enter the kingdom 
must experience and undergo a change of heart. Everyone that wants to enter into God's salvation through Christ must have a change of mind. Uh, It's the same kind of thing John called for as he announced the the arrival of the Messiah, the the anointed king. Uh, He summoned uh, the people uh, up in the early verses, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In other words, give him easy access to your heart and and conform your life to his word. Verse 4 says, John appeared baptizing on the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so John the baptizer was calling them to change their hearts, change their minds, change their directions. He's calling them to turn around, uh, make a 180 away from sin and and turn away from any self-righteousness you're resting in and turn around and turn back to the Lord. And this same requirement, requirement? Requirement, I say, stands for anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of God, the, the realm of salvation. To anyone who wants to be delivered from sin and the kingdom of darkness, to, to all those who want to escape from the wrath to come, there's a call to change your allegiance, change your direction, change your mind, make a 180, turn away from either the sin you're involved in or the self-righteousness you're relying on, your Catholic parochial school upbringing, your your baptism, your confirmation, your your membership, your how many dozens of times you've had communion as a, as as a child or adult, what you've done, all the good deeds you could list, uh, or or your sinful lifestyle. Turn away from that, and turn toward Christ. And turn towards His payment on the cross. The payment on cross that He made as our substitute. The payment He made for our sin. Leave that stuff in the background and go turn to Jesus and rely completely on Him. Now is that required for salvation? Yes. Yes, it is. One uh, gentleman describes it this way. No minister of an earthly sovereign would ever announce, so and so has become your king. If it pleases you, accept him as your king. Such a blasé, noncommittal declaration certainly did not characterize the news of a Roman emperor's ascension to the throne. The very announcement that so-and-so is king contains an implicit demand for submission. Jesus' announcement that God is king contains the same absolute demand. The divine rule blazed abroad by Jesus therefore requires immediate human decision and commitment, repentance, submission to God's reign, and trust that the incredible is taking place. The first requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God, into salvation, is repentance. So I 
I don't want to beat a dead horse. I just want to point out that this is not what many of us have heard. We have heard that repentance was not any part of salvation. Maybe not uh, deliberately, but accidentally. It just wasn't mentioned. That a change of direction is involved. In fact, many of you have heard the very opposite. That you can pray a prayer and go on living the way you're living. And you're a Christian. I just want to point out, that is not what the Bible says. It says repent and believe. So if, you, if this makes you bristle, if you uh, find this a little hard to swallow, then simply study the scriptures and let them speak. Um, let me move on to the next requirement and bring it together. I hope, I hope this will make more sense once we see both of them. The next requirement is, of course, belief that I've just said. Uh, entrance into the kingdom, into, into, the, into salvation requires personal trust or complete reliance. And this is inseparable from repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. One does not come without the other. Um, uh, repentance is simply one side of the coin. It involves a change of direction. Again, we call that turning away from sin. Belief on the other side of that same coin involves turning toward something, turning toward Christ in his payment for sin. Please understand that this belief is not just knowing factual information. Uh, many people know that uh, uh, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Did you hear me say Washington? For, uh, first president of the United States. Uh, most of us would consider that true. True knowledge. And so it's not just knowing facts. It's not just knowing that those facts are true facts. Uh, as Jesus casts out demons, uh, remember what they say? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And so knowing facts and believing they're true qualifies us basically, as Dr. Sproul says, qualifies you to be a demon. <laughs> this belief is, is not just knowledge of facts and knowledge that those facts are true and Dr. Sproul always can say it so much better than I ever could. Uh, this belief involves personal trust. Personally relying on Christ. Yes, it's important to know the facts about Christ. Uh, even to believe that they're true. That He died on the cross as a payment for sin. And, and to believe that true. But each of us must come to the point where we rely on His death as the payment for our own sin. And so we would widely acknowledge that men and women are, are sinful, separated from God by their sin, and in need of a Savior. But we have to reach the point where we acknowledge that we are sinners. I am a sinner. I am separated from God because of my sin, and I desperately, I desperately need a Savior. 
So I'm turning away from my attempts to be good enough for God and I'm relying completely on the payment Jesus made as my substitute. That, or words like that, uh, is the kind of belief Christ is talking about here. Personal faith in Him. And these are the requirements. Repent and believe. Two sides of the very same coin. And those who want her to enter into salvation, enter into the kingdom of God, must repent and believe. Turn away from their sin or self-righteousness and turn toward Christ. Amen. Pastor Rob, I've heard you. I don't know that I can do it. I don't think I have it in me. You are absolutely right. You do not have it in you. The good news is that both repentance and faith are gifts of God. He gives them both to you. He gives you the ability to turn away from sin and turn toward Christ. Uh, the Jews hearing that the Gentiles, non-Jews, were turning to trust in Jesus, the church in Acts said, uh, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Oh, that's so huge. And then you can read about the, the same statements in Acts 5.31. And 2 Timothy 2.25 say that repentance is a gift of God. And then faith. Uh, the kind of personal trust that Jesus calls for is also God's gift. And these familiar words say that very thing. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The question, I always hope it's a burning question, what's this? What is it? And this is the gift. Uh, this is not your own doing. It is the gift. of What's that point, point to? And I would say it points to this whole first sentence. By grace, you've been saved through faith. All that is God's gift. Being saved by grace through faith. That is given to you, including uh, the faith uh, that apprehends God's gift of salvation. <laughs> it's given to us. You don't have it in you. Absolutely not. But both repentance and faith are gifts of God. Look, I don't know where anybody is spiritually. Well, I kind of do, some of you. But, you know, if you're sitting on the fence today, or maybe if you know you're not a Christian, and wow, you'd kind of really like to be part of God's kingdom, but you hear me talk about this and you too think you can't do it, then... All you need to do, friend, is just pray, God, grant me repentance and faith. God, give me this repentance and faith. Oh, 
I, I recognize that I have offended you by my sin. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to taste freedom from darkness. I want to uh, taste the domain of light. I want to know Christ. Lord, give me repentance and faith. And uh, if that is your heart's desire, then I can pretty fairly certainly say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And friend, you will be saved. Now, if you don't want anything to do that, do with that, no. Well, I also want to say pretty firmly that nobody is going to be dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God against their will. If you don't want that, you don't have to take it. But this third thing that we're called to, uh, rather the third change that we see in this first event is a change of loyalty. There's a change of location, a change of kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near in the King, Christ, and He calls for a change of allegiance. Switch your loyalties to Me. This is His proclamation. Uh, the second event of His early ministry is the summons of the King. Uh, Jesus here summons four fishermen. And they actually demonstrate for us what this change in loyalty looks like. And they demonstrate that change by following him. Let me point out two things about the king's summons to you in the next paragraph. <clears throat> First of all, I want you to see its power. Christ summons these four men and the summons is so powerful and so commanding that it produces an immediate response in their lives. Look at verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Please note, and many of us often assume that Simon and Andrew were just nothing more than day laborers. But I put it to you that fishing, uh, especially on the Sea of Galilee, was a thriving business. Fish from this lake in northern Israel were in demand in places as far away as in Alexandria in Egypt. <coughs> fishing was an international trade. They were in direct competition with those who fished on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and so to stay in business in this trade, a highly competitive trade, they had to be very knowledgeable, very shrewd, and clever businessmen. Excuse me while I get my cough drop. Uh, that's the kind of men Simon and Andrew were. They were not country bumpkins. They were successful businessmen. And Jesus walks up to them as they're busily engaged in their trade and says in verse 17... And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. This invitation for them to follow is an invitation for them to become his disciples <coughs> or, or to become learners and to learn from him by following him around. That was a common thing in the ancient world. Uh, in ancient Greece, they had... Uh, the Greek philosophers would be followed around by their students and uh, the philosopher would teach as they walked along and 
the, the learners would memorize and recite the things they said. Jewish rabbis in this day uh, could also be seen with a group of learners following them. So it's clear what Christ is asking. He's summoning them to leave that successful business behind and, and to come along as he walks around and learn from him. It's a very, very tall order. What happens? It says in verse 18, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Jesus, Jesus wasn't a total stranger to them. They had been with him before. John tells us that they had accompanied him to the wedding in Cana. They had seen Christ turn water into wine. They have a pretty good idea that he's the Messiah, the anointed king. But even knowing that, their response is, is remarkable. Immediately they leave their nets to follow. They leave behind their source of income. They leave behind their successful business they've built to follow God's anointed king. And the reason for their remarkable response is because the words of Jesus aren't merely an invitation. They're an authoritative summons. His words come with power that produces this response from Simon and Andrew. So one Bible scholar says this about the summons. The only explanation for the sudden response of the disciples is that Mark wants to underscore the force of Jesus' call. It alone propels them to follow. He chooses whom he wills, and his call comes like a sharp military command that produces obedience. He commands as God commands. Like God, Jesus speaks, and it happens. Jesus speaks, come follow me, and it creates obedience that compels people to follow and join his Band. This is what some refer to as the effectual or effective call of God, also sometimes called the inward call. Um, Dr. Sproul says it like this, defines the effectual call in these words, it is the secret work of quickening or regeneration accomplished in the souls of the elect by the immediate supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. It affects or works the inward change of the disposition, inclination, and desire of the soul. Before the inward effectual call of God is received, no person is inclined to come to Him. Everyone who is effectually called is now disposed to God and responds in faith. Now I know t some of you find that a little tough to swallow. That God must have a call upon us that actually produces the change. This is the power and authority of his call. But friends, 
consider what the Bible says about us before this. We were not inclined to follow Christ. Yeah, maybe you grew up in a home where you always went to church. That doesn't mean you were inclined to Christ. Colossians uh, says we were enemies, hostile toward God. Romans 8 says we could not submit to God's law. We were unable to do so. And so what's required is we must be given a new will, a new heart. This effectual calm must take place for us to follow like Andrew and uh, uh, Simon, Peter, uh, did when Jesus said, follow me. That's the inward call of God. There's also an outward call. I'm making the outward call right now. Uh, the outward call is anytime someone shares the word with someone who doesn't know Christ. In, in the case of the outward call, that call, it can be ignored, as it often is. Resisted, as it often is. Refused, as it often is. And Scripture tells us to keep on doing this until He returns with anyone we can, announcing to as many people as possible that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the inward call must strike home for that person to respond in faith. And some of you keep scratching your head. Go ahead. Read what Scripture says for yourself. But some of you know what this is. Because it happened to you. And you can think of that time when you found it irresistible to refuse Christ anymore. And you felt Him draw Him to uh, saving faith. Draw you to saving faith in Him. This inward call is what we're observing here in these men. Compelled to believe. Compelled to follow. So this summons has power. Of course, Jesus will offer the good news to many who will turn him down and upon those people the effectual call the uh, inward call uh, did not take place but it did in the lives of these two men and the next two men the next two men we see not only the power of his summons we see its priority when the king summons us his call takes priority over all other calls on our life. Uh, this is a great example of changing allegiances. Look at verse 19. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. James and John's fishing business, um, Zebedee boating, or whatever you want to call it, uh, seems to have been in better shape than Simon and Andrew's. Their catch is in such demand that they've actually hired people to help them. They've got so much work, uh, they're trading so much that they need people to bring in uh, the, the, the product. 
And just as Jesus came to Simon and Andrew, Jesus comes to them, calls them to follow in a similar way. And they respond in a similar way. But James and John leave behind a business that's even more successful than Simon and Andrew. And they also leave behind their father. The authoritative call of Jesus, the summons of God's anointed king comes with such power and exerts such influence that his call surpasses all other calls, even the call of family. The summons of the king takes priority over every other call on our lives. Our allegiance to the king must surpass every other allegiance. And again, I point us back to our scripture reading today that made it clear. Just a reminder of what Luke 15 had to say. These verses not so hard to understand, but hard to swallow. Now, great crowds accompanied him. So his popularity is, is at a high, all kinds of people thronging. And he, and he goes on to explain what it takes to be his follower. Uh, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, if your love for me doesn't make your love for your wife look like hate, something's wrong. Your love for me is to be so great that the attention you give to her, actually, some people would consider it hate. He's not calling us to hate our parents. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's not calling us to hate anyone. He's calling us to a greater affection for himself than any other relationship we have going. He concludes with the words of verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hard to swallow. So, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson described the priority of this call in these words. In principle, the challenge is exactly the same for us. It may not necessarily involve such a dramatic change in our everyday occupations, but Christ's call in His kingly reign over our lives does mean that from then on, they are no longer at our own disposal. My family, my occupation, even my profitable business partnership, all must now be at the disposal of Jesus Christ. That is hard to swallow, isn't it? But those are the terms that he issues 
that are required to be his disciple. Again, forgive me if I'm beating a dead horse. I was taught that you could become a Christian and then sometime later on, then you became a disciple. Such a division I don't, no longer believe exists in the scriptures. The call to saving faith is a call to follow Jesus as your Lord. It's not saying the sinner's prayer and then later on when you get really serious about things, then you become his disciple. No, 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 no. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. This really gets down to what it means to be a Christian. And friend, this change of allegiance should be something that, again, you don't have to leave your occupation unless He calls you to. You don't have to leave your business, profitable though it is, unless He summons you. Everything is at His disposal, including all your relationships. This call, His call on your life takes priority over every other call in your life. This is His summons. He summons four fishermen who change their loyalties to follow Him. It is powerful. It creates this response that's needed. It is a priority. Uh, supersedes every other call. I asked you at the start, does Christ really call us to the display that Hans von Zieten uh, made in front of King Frederick and the rest of the assembled men on that evening? What level of loyalty are we called to as believers? What kind of allegiance does He expect from us? We see in these first two events of His ministry uh, the kind of loyalty He desires, the kind of allegiance He calls for from His followers. Uh, The proclamation of the King. We saw it took place in a new location, was an announcement of a new kingdom and the new kingdom called for new loyalty, uh, new allegiance, a change of direction. And then the second event was the summons of the king, which we just looked at. And we saw the power of this summons and the priority of his summons. I think, uh, boy, I think this change in loyalty is best summed up by this to me, it's a really old song. The song actually came from the Indian continent. Uh, in fact, the tune is called Assam, which is a province in India. And the words very simply go like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. It goes on in a similar vein. A lot of repetition. <laughs> if 
the world behind me, the cross before me. The third verse, though none go with me, I still will follow. And finally, will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. And if you're not singing this literally out loud, it's the tune he calls you to sing inside. Yes, I've, I've decided to follow. Uh, the world behind me, the cross before me. That's exactly the call he's called us to make. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Christ Jesus, we come before you this morning. And uh, we acknowledge that some of us have been unfaithful to your call. Uh, We have gone back to fishing, as we see Peter do later on. And let us hear your clear call. We confess that we don't have the power to turn away in our own strength. Our hearts remain uh, resistant and rebellious. Uh, Our sin nature still exists and fights every tooth fights tooth and nail every step of the way. Christ, empower us to take up the cross and follow. May these words be our words. Uh, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. We ask you please to produce this in us by your gracious spirit. We ask Savior in your name. Amen.